welcome. I'm happy that y'all could be here with me today and uh, with us today. Uh, Christopher, Zach, Derek, Sean, wherever y'all all are, thank y'all, thank you, thank you, thank you. Golly, Bill, does my heart good um, just to publicly declare that what y'all have led us in is true and that's what I'm bank, banking my life on. Um, I've been a Christian <clears throat> for 42 or 43 years. I was a senior in high school when I accepted Christ. And I'd grown up in church, but it wasn't, I didn't, I didn't either, I wasn't told very much or I didn't hear very much. Maybe a combination of both. But um, I've tried to follow the Lord, you know, for those 42 years. And for the last six years, God has, uh, for I'm going to share with you the reasons, but for the last six years, God has really taught me some things about Himself and about His plans for me and for y'all uh, that I couldn't hear before. I couldn't, I couldn't receive it. I couldn't understand it. And then uh, six years ago, and it all sort of happened at the same time, um, something marvelous happened and then something not marvelous happened. Um, what happened marvelously is uh, my daughter uh, was pregnant and was living in Manhattan where no one should live. And um, uh, through a, a series of wonderful events, she moves not just out of Manhattan, but to Memphis. And uh, miraculously, they needed about six or five. And so she uh, was pregnant, and she and her husband were living with us when my grandson was born. And when I tell y'all that is a, was a gift, uh, every morning for six months, every morning, for, I get up real early, and uh, he'd wake up about, I was already downstairs when he would wake up every morning and my daughter would bring him downstairs and uh, lay him in my lap. And I'd have coffee in one hand and Teddy'd be laying on my stomach and uh, I'd have my Bible in the other hand. And for six months, I got to do that. And uh, when I, you, don't you come to me and tell me God doesn't love me. I will never believe you. Never. Because that that's that was a gift, and one of the one of the things that God revealed to me during those six months, and after that, was just how God designed the beginning of life to be a testimony to us about how fragile, how helpless, how dependent we really are. I mean, Teddy brought nothing. He, he offered nothing. He could do nothing. 
he was absolutely dependent on me when he would lay on my chest. Um, he, he was helpless. And you know what? That was perfectly wonderful with me. I, I needed nothing. I wanted nothing. <laughs> he brought nothing to the table that I could use. I just, it was just, uh, yeah. You know, just, it's good. It's, it's, but it, it's more than just the way life begins. It's one of the ways that God teaches us things. That's the way He relates to us and that's the way He sees us and that's the way He wants us to relate to Him. Uh, uh, about the same time, give or take a year, the timeline's not perfect, you'll see my point. My dad, well, the, the timeline's not perfect, you'll see my point. I began to watch through the life of my mom taking care of my dad who was dying of cancer. And I began to watch my mother-in-law take care of my father-in-law who was also dying of cancer. Or, well, several he was dying of several things. But nonetheless, he was dying. And especially the last year of my dad's life and then the last year of my father-in-law's life, again, it was such a picture they could do nothing. They could do nothing. They, both these men had spent their lives charging and accomplishing and accumulating and, you know, just, just doing, doing good stuff. I don't mean bad stuff, good stuff. And taking care of people and helping people and building families and lives and a friendship group and communities and but the last year of their life, they could do nothing. They were absolutely someone else to take care of them. And again, I believe very strongly that wasn't just the way it is. That's not just a biological truth. There is such a spiritual message from God that He's wanting us to see, and that is the way life starts and the way life ends, which, you know, when your mama was going out of town, the first thing she said when she was leaving and the last thing she said when she was leaving, those are normally the most important two things. Okay? Same, same is true with this deal. The first thing God wants us to see and the last thing God wants us to see. The first thing God says, the last thing God says. These are big truths and they're the same truth. And that is, I don't want from you. I don't need from you. I'm not, I, I just, I love you. I delight in you. I want to have a relationship with you. But I'm the one with the abundance. I'm the one that brings not just much to the table, everything to the table. You bring nothing. I need nothing from you. This is not a reciprocal. You, know, this, you see these idiot, I hope nobody's in here that's an idiot. Surely you're not. But these idiot uh, bumper stickers, God is my co-pilot. Gosh, that says a whole lot. 
God doesn't want to be our co-pilot. <laughs> what he wants us to do is to sit back in the plane and enjoy the flight. He, he in fact, please don't touch the wheel. I can see him just saying, please don't touch the wheel. Please don't touch the wheel. I got this. God wants us to see. It's important to God that we see that we are helpless, we are needy, and that is the way God designed it. He is good with that, and He wants us to approach Him in that way. The Old Testament um, continually declares that truth. If you are wondering if what I'm saying is true, just the sheer redundancy of the message, Adam and Eve, they messed the whole deal up as terribly as they possibly could. And what does God tell them? Okay, y'all are going to have to start. Y'all have messed up this part of the garden. I need y'all to start weeding and edging and roundupping and trimming. No. I need y'all to do a bunch of penance. I need y'all to do a bunch of sacrifices, a bunch of extra. No, no, no. Just stand. I've got a provision. I've got the provision for what you've done. I'm the one with the abundance. I'm the one with the provision. I'm the one that can... I'm not asking you to do anything. Just accept it and trust it. Abraham, the most horrifying, difficult, terrifying moment in his life. He's faced with of the challenge of do I trust God and follow God and obey God and take my son up on this mountain and do what he says. And what does he tell? Isaac looks at him and says, Dad, I see the knife, I see the fire, I see the wood, but where's the lamb? And Abraham doesn't say, you're it. What Abraham said is, God will provide. When Abraham was at his most terrifying moment of need. God had the provision. God, notice Abraham didn't go, well, now I better bring an extra lamb just in case. In case plan A to come through, I'm going to have an extra lamb or I'm going to have a rope to, and a trap to catch a, 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 a goat or a sheep or a, or some, a deer. Uh, no, no, no. God provided for Abraham. Israel at the Passover. Death angels coming. It, not looking good for anybody and everybody. In every home, everybody's going to, or the, every first, every home's going to experience death. God said, I've got the provision. I've got the provision. Just trust me. Mephibosheth, which if y'all have the wherewithal to go home this afternoon and Spend a little time in 2 Samuel chapter 9. It's such a glorious story of how David's arch enemy, um, he had a grandson, and this boy, this man, lived in this town called Lodabar, which the very word means worthless. And he was, he, he, he was penniless. He had nothing. He could do nothing. He was lame in a world of military champions. If you were a man, the definition of a man in David's day was you could fight and defeat enemies in battle. That was the definition of a man. This guy was crippled. 
He comes before the king, comes before David. He knows what he deserves is to be killed for the sins of his granddaddy. But, it's, but David instead doesn't see him through the eyes of his granddaddy. He sees him through the eyes of his dad, Jonathan. And Mephibosheth doesn't say, oh, let, I, I can fight from my wheelchair. I can bring a, a lot of the gold that I've got back home. He has no gold. He has no nothing. He can bring nothing. He offers nothing. And here's the great thing. David doesn't need anything. David doesn't need Mephibosheth's military might. David doesn't need his gold. David's got more than enough of all. What he wants is to just pour into Mephibosheth, not draw out of Mephibosheth. These people and come needy. They come, they, they, they are God's way of declaring, come needy, come helpless, come, come with an expectation that I'm going to pour into your life, not because I need you. That's why Isaiah says in chapter 55, come all who are thirsty, come to the waters, you have no money, come, Eat, come, buy wine and milk without money and without cost. God's got this table set full of wines and milk and whatever else you want. He says, don't, don't come offering. Come receiving. The New Testament, if, if, if anything, it magnifies this principle that we are helpless we bring nothing to the table. Think about all the stories in the Gospels. Stories about the blind and the deaf and the lame and the poor and lepers and the demon-possessed. The, the dad who had the demon-possessed son by the, by the lake and uh, uh, Jesus comes and destroys him. What does Jesus ask of the man? What does the man have to do? What does the man have to offer to get Jesus' attention? Jesus is love. Nothing. Nothing. The dad with the very sick little girl who eventually died before Jesus could get to the house. What did the dad and the mom have to do? What did they have to offer? What did they have to change? What could they provide for Jesus? Nothing. The mom who had the little sick girl, such a sick girl, and Jesus, and she comes to Jesus and asks her, what did that lady have to do? Nothing. The four men who had the friend who couldn't walk. What did those four men have to do to get Jesus to show favor and kindness and help to that crippled man? And I could go on and on and on. The, the Roman centurion with the servant uh, who was so sick. What did that Roman uh, soldier have to do? What did they have to bring? What did he have to bring? Jesus' parables, again, validate this principle. The good, uh, the, uh, yeah, the good Samaritan. Um, the man that was beaten up and laying on the side of the road. What was his part of the solution? What was his part of being rescued and helped and delivered and healed. What did he contribute? Nothing. Nothing at all. The lost sheep, the lost coin, the lost son. And I, again, parable after parable. The unforgiving servant. 
who owed the king so much. King, I'll pay you back. I'll pay you back if you just give me some time. And the king says, you're missing the point, dude. You're missing the point. I don't need your money. I'll just forgive you of everything. why Jesus says in Matthew 9, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. I didn't come for the righteous. I didn't come for people who are working so hard to follow the straight and narrow. Who are crossing every T and dotting every I. Who are just working and working and working to try to earn God's favor. I didn't come for those people. Maybe somebody else will show up to help them, but that's not who I came for. I did not come for the righteous. I came instead for sinners. He says in Matthew 11, Come to me all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. I'm not looking for the fastest, the strongest, the most talented. I'm not looking, no offense, you'll see my point. He's not looking for the Olympic teams. He's looking for the old, fat, slow people like me who barely can take a walk around the block. That's who he, He's not looking for the best of the best of the best. Paul says in Ephesians 2, For by grace are we saved through faith, and that not of ourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. Paul goes on to say in Romans that the way God relates to you and to me, the way God treats us, the way God relates to us, it removes all possibility of boasting. You understand that that if if you're wondering what God's up to in your life, I I don't know what that is, what God is wanting you to do. I I don't know what that is, but I can tell you what it's not. He's not wanting you and me to relate to Him in ways where there's any possibility that we could look at ourselves. To point to ourselves. He relates to us in ways that removes the possibility of boasting. That's why He says in Revelation chapter 22, let all who thirst come. All who wish take from my living water freely. I love that. See, we don't, you don't come to a, a well of abundant, fresh, cool, delicious water with a, a big um, package full of bottled water. You don't come bringing water to a well. A well doesn't need any water. We come to God as if He needs us. God says, I'm like a well full of living water. I don't come with cups of water to add to the well. The well doesn't need my water. It asks of nothing. It needs nothing. The well just offers to quench and satisfy our thirst if we will drink. That's why this idea of praise is such a significant thing in the Bible. Because that's really the only thing that I can do. And it's the only thing that God desires of us. Is just, 
And if I drink from that well, the only thing I can offer that well is for me to stand up and say, ah, that was so wonderful. That's what God wants of us, to just taste and see that He is good, that His water is satisfying and quenching, that His goodness is better than life itself. And to declare that, God loves for other people to hear that you and I have found abundant life in our relationship with Him. The only thing that I can do is to declare God's goodness. Who does God invite us? Who does God invite to come into His presence? The weary, not the worker bees. The thirsty, not those who've got some good bottles of wine. The hungry, not those that have a banquet. The foolish, not the brilliant. The filthy, not those who are bathed. The poor, not the rich. The broken, not the whole. The sick, not the healthy. The weak, not the strong. So important that we see this. This might seem sort of fundamental to some of you, but I'm telling you, it is so important for me to be reminded that God needs nothing from me. He asks of nothing. He, does, he just wants me. And He wants me so that He can pour out His goodness in abundance upon me. And for some of you, and I know most of you pretty well, this is hard for you to hear. It's hard for me to hear. Because I'm, I'm a doer. I want to give. I want to serve. I want to, I want to give back. That's a big deal to the way I'm wired. It's, it's easy for me to forget and it's hard for me to remember that God doesn't need my effort. It attacks my pride. It hurts my pride to hear that I add nothing. I bring nothing to the love of God to the work of God on the cross, to God's... God doesn't, doesn't increase His affection for me or His desire to favor me based upon how faithfully I read the Bible and pray and give and say no to bad stuff and say yes to good stuff. It's hard for me to hear this, just to be quite honest with you, because it also robs me it robs me of my rights to complain, to demand, to expect. I'm not careful. I can start saying to God, you're not doing this right. You're not performing the way I think you should. Robs me of my right to complain and whine. Why isn't God doing this the way I think He should? Why isn't God living up to my... God's saying, are you coming thirsty? Are you coming join you and you've got your flight plan and you'd like for me to join you in your flight plan. Doesn't that impress you, David Gull, that I knew all about flight plans? <laughs> um, Nick's not here today, is he? Not, not, not that Nick. The, another, I mean Mick. Not, not Nick, Nick. Mick's not here today, is he? Mick would probably be the only person in this room who would be aware of this man. But uh, if you're in the marathon running 
world, then you would be aware of a, a, a man who passed away this past March. And his name was Dick Holt. And the reason you would know of him in the running world, he was 80 years old when he died this past March. And what made him well known was that uh, 40 years, 45 years, give or take, ago, um, his little son at the time, I think he was five or six years old, he's a quadriplegic, and his name was Rick. Do you know about him, Kim? And um, he uh, uh, was watching the Olympics, and uh, he turned to his dad and said, Dad, I wished I could run a marathon someday. Being a quadriplegic, he, that was not going to be possible. Dad never run, ran a lick in his life. He looked at his son and he said, you will run with me, run one. <laughs> and for the next 40 years, Dick Holt ran over a hundred and finished over a hundred marathons, including finishing the Boston Marathon 38 times, pushing his son. And uh, I thought about that a whole lot. Uh, if you had been there in the crowd watching this dad push his quadriplegic son uh, in these races. He ran the Chicago and the New York and you know, all these different marathons. But I wonder if anybody said, Rick, good job. Way to go. Wait to add to your dad's racing, his running. Boy, you sat there really well. No. The star of the show. Now, I'm not taking away from the, the little boy and, and the difficulties he faced. But the star of the show is not the sitter. The star of the show is the runner. And that dad ran over a hundred marathons pushing his boy. The boy could do nothing. The boy could add nothing. The dad did it all. And he did it all for his son. I just want you to know today, maybe for some of you it's the first time you've ever heard this, but God offers eternal life to people with empty hands. God offers eternal life to people who will trust in what God can do and acknowledge that they cannot do anything. They just look to Him to do for them what they cannot do for them. Our boast all day long and we will praise your name forever. I wonder what we ought to do with that information. What do you do with that? Not just something else you take a few notes on and stick it in your Bible and keep it there for a while, and then eventually you throw it away. Um, what are we supposed to do with that information?
Let me ask you a couple of questions. First question I'd like to ask is this. Who are you more like? Rick or Dick? Are you the one that's trying to get yourself into heaven? Are you the one that's the accomplisher, the doer? Even in your relationship with God? Are you more like Dick? Are you more like Rick, the son? All I can do is enjoy the ride. And either my dad's going to get me to the finish line or he won't. Either he can do it or he can't. Either he's strong enough or he's not. Either he's got the stamina or he doesn't. Either he's got the provision or he doesn't. But either way, all I can do is trust in him. Makes me think of what David said in Psalm 3. I love this. David has uh, David was a king of Israel. And in that day, a king only had two things that he really gloried in. One was his people, and one was his sons. That's what a king's king found glory and value in, weight in, significance in his people and his sons. The problem is his son was Absalom, and Absalom, the Bible says, had turned the hearts of the people of Israel away from the king. And Absalom was trying to kill him. So in fact, David had lost the two things that he found glory in, his people and his sons. What happened in David's life was this. David made this declaration in Psalm 3. Lord, you are a shield around my life. You are my glory. You are the lifter of my head. You are a shield around my life. You are my glory. And you are the lifter of my head. David came to a place in his life where he recognized. What you got to value, David? What matters, David? What are you bringing to the table, David? God, I have lost everything. That matters. But I've got you. You are my glory. You are my glory. Second thing I would ask myself that I've been thinking about this week. Do I... I wouldn't say this out loud. You probably wouldn't either. But do I consistently live in terror? that I am not doing enough, that I'm not praying enough, reading the Bible enough, saying no to sin enough, giving enough, sacrificing enough, helping old ladies across the street enough. Am I doing enough so that God will look on me with kindness and let me into heaven? When I was a kid, my mom will probably not like me saying this, but when I was a kid growing up in Whitehaven, this church that we went to, anyway, uh, I'll never forget, as a boy, uh, 
on Sunday mornings, right before church, the associate pastor would come out and round up some men to usher and do the Lord's Supper. And you could tell who had lived the most wickedly on Saturday night. Those were the men that were the most passionate about getting up there in the front so they could usher and do the Lord's Supper. And these were all my dad's old cronies. And uh, they'd been out Saturday night carousing and drinking and carrying on, acting ugly. And so, on, and I'll, ne I'll never forget several different times I heard those men make comments like, I hope God's looking. I hope God's watching. I hope God's noticing. Because if I just usher enough or serve the Lord's Supper enough or throw enough bucks in the plate, somehow God will notice and smile and give me favor. I just wanted to declare to you that before you came in here today, God was smiling at you. He thought you were great. He loves you. He delights in you. And whether you do any of those good deeds that I mentioned or not, that doesn't change a thing. But many of us wake up in the morning and go to bed at night a little worried, sometimes a lot worried. Am I doing enough to make God smile? The testimony of the Lord Jesus is, my dad's been smiling at you since time before time began. Third question I've been asking myself this week is, when other people look at my life, do I look like I'm a lottery winner or a marathon runner? I ran a marathon one time. I beat four hours. I was very proud of myself. But you know what you do when you run a marathon? You walk, you run into the arena or the stadium or whatever it is. We ran into the Redbirds baseball field deal. And uh, uh, you're, you're exhausted. You're, you're weary. You're tired. I made it. I did it. I, I, I finished. But it's all about me. It's all about me. Versus somebody that's given a lottery ticket and danged if the lady on the TV doesn't read the number and you win. Oh my gosh. Oh my goodness. That's the difference. Do we see what God is giving us as this gift that we don't deserve? Or is some, if I just keep the faith, hold on, keep trudging on, woo, it's a long, hard, miserable road, but if I just keep the faith, I'll eventually get there. Is that it? I, I want that Christian. I, I want to be a part of that. I've been watching you trudge on day in and day out. Like anything that's going on in your life, I want what you've got. No. Nobody, nobody wants that. Nobody wants that. Okay. read the book of Romans Romans 1 through 11 is Paul's attempt to say to you what I've just said to you 
that God's forgiveness and God's favor and God's love and God's righteousness are offered freely to any who will believe it and receive it. That's what Romans 1-11, through the greatest theological treatise ever written by human, that's what he says in Romans 1-11. through And then in Romans 12, verse 1, he says this, Therefore, therefore, I beseech you by the mercies of God to present your bodies as a sacrifice, a living sacrifice to God. Since God has done all this and feels this way about you and has provided all this and has given you such commitment and offers you such delight, seek Him, get to know Him. Understand Him. Embrace Him. Follow Him. Not to earn what He's already given, but because of He's that wonderful, surely there's even more wonderfulness ahead. He'll lead you toward more wonderfulness. So follow Him. Get to know Him. I hope you will. I hope I will. He is that amazing that loving, that forgiving, that committed to us, He's worth getting to know and follow. We're going to take the Lord's Supper. And we are going to do this by taking bread, which is in the top of this little deal, and a wine facsimile on the bottom and uh, we're going to eat and we're going to drink and uh, for some of you you might go why do you do that? We do that because Jesus 2,000 years ago on the night before He died on the cross He told His disciples when y'all in the days ahead when you gather together I want you to take bread which is going to represent my body and wine which represents my blood and I want you to eat and drink it as a way of reminding yourself and as a way of declaring to other people that Jesus' body, Jesus' life, and Jesus' blood were given so that we could have a relationship with God Himself. And that as we internalize this bread and this wine, so we have internalized the atonement the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus. And so let's eat and let's drink as a way of declaring our faith in the Lord Jesus.